Uh, This morning, I would like for us to consider a scenario unfolding in your life. We're going to do a type of role-playing here. You're a fairly health-conscious person. You go to your regular checkups each year. You listen to the advice of your doctor. You exercise regularly and maintain a good diet. Generally speaking, you're healthy. Your doctor always gives you a clean bill of health. Your test results always come back looking good. Other than just reminding you to keep your exercise and diet in check, it really doesn't have much to say about your health. You spend most of the time talking about your family or upcoming events, vacations, and other friendly, fun stuff like that. And so you've developed a great rapport with him. He's someone that you trust. And you would even go so far as to say he is your friend. In fact, you've recommended him to numerous friends and family and co-workers throughout the years. And aside from the occasional person who would just rather see another doctor, they've always been satisfied with him too. Now, a time comes when you go and you see your doctor, and this isn't a normal scheduled yearly checkup. You've made this appointment because you've been feeling especially fatigued. This is some out-of-the-ordinary type of exhaustion, and you sense that something is just not right. Now, you're in the doctor's office, and when he walks into the room, you can see something in his posture. His expression is worrisome, and you can tell that he has something to say. And it's going to be difficult. And he says to you something like this. Well... We've tried to cover this up as much as possible over the past several visits, but I should probably tell you now, you have cancer. And now it's gotten to the point where there's really nothing that we can do about it. It's inoperable, and it's terminal. Now, as you sit there listening to the doctor tell you this, your jaw drops to the floor. And as you're absorbing the stunning body blows of the reality that you have inoperable cancer, you're also receiving an out-of-nowhere left hook from your own trusted friend that he knew. He knew all along, and he said absolutely nothing. Now, you're stammering for words, and through all the shock and anger that's pouring through you, You manage, after a few moments, to say to your trusted friend and doctor, you knew? And you didn't tell me? You lied to me all along about the test results, and you knew? Why? Why didn't you tell me? His response is just about as shocking as his withholding this critical diagnosis from you. And he has a bit of smugness and Maybe even defensive self-justification in his voice when he says, I didn't want to upset you. I like seeing you happy. Plus, I knew that if I told you, you would probably go start seeing another doctor. You angrily respond, why would you think I wouldn't want to know this? Without missing a beat, he fires back. You've always told me that indeed you didn't like bad news. You said it over and over again about how you hate negativity and people pointing out what's wrong with other people and being critical, especially when it comes to you. 
Now let me ask you, is this the type of doctor that you would want? Is this the type of friend that you would want? A spouse? Or parent? Or teacher? Now when I lay out this scenario, it seems quite absurd to answer yes to any of those questions, doesn't it? And you may be thinking this kind of scenario could never happen. I mean, what kind of doctor would possibly withhold that kind of information? A doctor like that would be fired and sued for medical malpractice. Of course you'd want to know if you had cancer. At the first sign, you would be listening to every single thing that doctor tells you. Give it to me straight, you'd say. I want to know specifics. What do I need to do? Who do I need to go see? You would be clamoring for information. You would be reading day and night to find out as much as possible about your condition until you understood enough of it to know exactly what the next step is. I would want to know the truth, you'd say. After all, we want to listen to the truth, right? If there is something that is threatening our lives, we want to know about it, right? Well, let's test that for a moment. Let's apply this same approach to our spiritual lives. What if a brother came up to you and confronted you about seeing your eyes follow another woman who isn't your wife across the room? Are you ready to confront that truth? Or what if your spouse confronts you about your lack of attention to family matters? Are you going to be open to specifics about that? What if a sister called you out on some inappropriate or gossipy Facebook posts? How would you react? Would you be so quick to say, yeah, give it to me straight. I want to know the specifics. Don't hold back. See, when it comes to our spiritual life, it gets too personal. And it starts to get painful. Because it exposes us for who we are. When it comes to our spiritual life, we don't want to listen to the truth. We get all defensive and start quoting do not judge passages out of context just to get people to stop talking about it. We rationalize our sins and unholy lifestyle or even just shrug it off as no big deal. Now why would we do that? We can see so clearly that if a doctor is coming at us with a diagnosis of cancer that would be open to receiving the truth. Confronting it. We want to know all we can to address it. But when it comes to our spiritual diagnosis, calling out unholy living, we prefer the doctor that withholds the bad stuff and only gives us what we want to hear. Why would anybody want a doctor like that? When we go about our spiritual life not wanting to receive the truth, we are really exposing what we think about God. It exposes what we believe about who God is. When we're not willing to listen to what God has to say about who he is and what he has to say about who we are, it reveals in our hearts what we think about him. God is not going to judge sins in my life. God is a God of love and forgiveness. He's not going to bother me with how I conduct myself. Grace is all I need to know. And it's an abuse of only accepting half-truths about who God is. We have a heart that warns that once a God 
of our own making that doesn't want to receive the honest, truthful diagnosis about who we are and who he is. We don't want to listen to the truth. We want to follow what we want. As contrary as it sounds, we prefer the doctor that just lets us be. and Never confronts us about the reality of what's going on inside of us. We don't want to square with the reality that we fail and fall short. And our hearts are exposed. But we need to listen to the truth of who God is. We need to listen to the truth of who God is so that the evil in our hearts doesn't thrive. Because what we listen to and believe about who God is affects the way we live and who we follow. Now this morning I'd like for us to examine a passage in Scripture that might not be quite familiar to all of us. And it's a passage I think that can serve as a warning of the danger that we face if we do not understand who God is. So if you haven't already, would you please turn in your Bibles in the Old Testament to the book of Micah. The book of Micah. Chapter 1. Now, as you're finding your way there, I just want to take a few moments and get us up to speed in the book of Micah. Uh, Micah was a prophet in the nation of Judah in the 8th century B.C. Now, the prophets served as spokespersons for God to their contemporaries. They spoke to the vast majority of what they wrote to the people of their time. Many would think that the prophets are as predictor of future events, and there was that component to their writing, but the vast majority of what they wrote as God's spokespersons was aimed at the people who lived during their time. And they were, as author and commentator Gordon Fee puts it, God's covenant enforcement mediators. They were mediators between God and his people, and God used these covenant enforcers to remind the people of the blessings and cursings God had promised in the Mosaic Law. Now, their message was nothing new. They offered no new theology. It was all written before in the Mosaic Law. They were simply sent to remind them of it, and they did so in a way that was designed to grab people's attention. And I want to show you real quick what I mean by that. And as we get started, I want to bring our attention to the way Micah is addressing the people. And look, look with me at uh, Micah chapter 1, verse 2. Look at what he says. Micah 1, verse 2, he says, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention. This is the way that Micah opens up his first oracle. He's saying, hear you people, listen, pay attention, all of you. The Lord has something to say to you. And Micah does this several times throughout the book. It's a device that he uses throughout all of this book of Micah. He says, pay attention. He uses the word here. Pay attention. Well, let's see if the people Micah is bringing the word of the Lord to are listening. So would you turn over to Micah chapter 2. Look with me at verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 6. What does it say? Preach it, brother. Give it to me straight. We want to know exactly what the Lord our God has to say. That's not what yours says? No? It says, do not preach. We don't want to listen to what you're saying. This is Micah echoing back the sentiment of the people he's bringing this message to. And this is their response. 
We don't want to hear it. Now, it's important to reemphasize here a key thing about who it is that they do not want to listen to. Micah is simply the spokesperson for God. He's God's mouthpiece, the human mediator that, is, that God is speaking through. So when he says, we don't want to listen to you, Micah, don't preach to us. In reality, they're saying, we don't want to listen to you, God. Now, as I'm working through this text, I'm going to use Micah and the Lord interchangeably here. So when you hear me say Micah's response, think the Lord's response. And the response to the Lord is, I don't want to hear it. Do not preach to me. Now, we'll get to what Micah is preaching in a moment, but I want to take a a look at this word preach here in verse 6. It can also be rendered as prophecy. But the way it's being used here isn't the usual way, as in giving us the divine will of the Lord. That's how the word prophecy would usually be used. No, the way that it's being used here, the way Micah is relaying their response, gives us a better understanding to their heart attitude about being preached to. The way the word is being used here means to drip or flow, and it's being used in a derogatory manner. As if... The manner of Micah's speech is so forceful that spittle is coming out as he speaks. Some translations use the word prattle here. Do not prattle at us, which means to talk at length in a foolish, inconsequential way. So what they're saying is they're saying, stop blabbering at us. Quit your yammering and all your barking at us. It's da-da-da-da-da-da all day long. That's the way that they hear Micah's preaching. That's the way that it's hitting their ears. And it's the way that it's hitting their hearts. They're seeing it as like an annoying little gnat that's buzzing around the ears that they just want to swat and be done away with. And they treat it with such contempt. And then they give their reason. Look with me again at the rest of verse 6. It says, Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Your preaching is all wrong, they say. This isn't the way one should preach. Disgrace will not overtake us. Now, what is it that they're referring to here? What is it that they're responding to and rejecting? Well, let's look over at verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. It says... Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. They are rejecting the oracle that the Lord is going to bring judgment on them for their sin. Now, we'll get to why God is calling disaster on them in a little bit, but for now I want us to focus on the rejection of God's word. They're rejecting the idea that any such a thing would possibly come upon them. To them, this is all wrong. This isn't the God they know. They're running with the position that Mike has just got some bad theology here. The God we worship is a God of love and of patience and a slow to anger. And you're coming at us with an angry, mean God that's going to bring disaster on his covenant people? You've got it all wrong, Micah. This can't possibly be from our God. You don't know what you're talking about. 
one should not preach of such things. Disaster is not going to overtake us. You see, they didn't fully grasp who God is. And when the word of the Lord came that God was going to bring disaster on them because of their wickedness, they rejected it. Are we listening? What we listen to and believe about who God is affects the way we live and who we follow. Now, I think it's important to take a moment here and talk about what's going on in our translations at this point. Remember, this is an ancient form of writing. It's written in a difficult language, and the interpreters in each translation have to make decisions about how they render things in modern English. But we need to understand whose voice or who it is at which point is speaking. Now, almost all scholars agree from the context that verse 6 is Micah quoting the response of the people he's preaching to. But there's not as strong of a consensus as to who's speaking in verse 7. Some scholars believe that all of verse 6 and 7 is the people's response too. And then in verse 8, it reverts back to the Lord speaking through Micah. But there are enough, as in most commentators, who would make good argument as to why the first part of verse 7 is the people's response to Micah, and then the second part of verse 7 is Micah's rebuttal. Now, I think it's important that we understand who is speaking here because it gives us tremendous insight on exactly where the people in Micah are clashing theologically. Yes, they are failing to listen. That is because they are failing to fully understand who God is. Look at verse 7. The people follow up with their rejection with an argument about who God is. They say, Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? What? Are you saying that the Lord is impatient? That is, he is a God, he's the God of mercy and patience. He's slow to anger. Would he do such a thing? These are the attributes that they were focused on. But are they the only attributes of God? Is that the complete picture of who God is? So if you would, I want you to put your finger in your place in Micah right now, because we're going to come back to it, and turn with me to Psalm 86. Psalm 86. Psalm 86, 15. It says, But you, O Lord, are our God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. They're saying, this is the character of our God. Not the one that you say is going to destroy his people. We are his covenant people. He loves us and protects us. Now, this verse in Psalm 86 that I just read is pretty much an exact quote from Exodus 34.6. So real quick, with still with your finger in Micah, turn over to Exodus 34. And we're going to go here so that we can see what was written to them about who God is. 
Exodus 34. It's good to hear the pages flipping in your Bibles. It's a good sound. It means people are in the Word of God. Exodus 34, verse 6. Tell me if this sounds familiar. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's Psalm 86.15. But then it continues. Verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, is, is that where it ends? Is that all God is revealing about himself? No. It goes on to reveal something crucial in understanding more of who God is. It continues and says, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Yes, God is a God of love who is faithful and gracious. And he forgives sin. But he is also a God of justice. You see that we're latching on to God's mercy and grace and the attributes of his patience and love and faithfulness at the expense of God's holiness and his righteousness and especially his justice. They were deliberately picking up and clinging to the attributes that suited them and allowed them to live in a manner that follow the desires of their own hearts. What we listen to and believe about who God is affects the way we live and who we follow. We need to be careful that we don't fall into the same trap, and some of us do. We like to cling to the Psalm 86.15s where the gracious, merciful attributes of God are featured but completely ignore the Exodus 34, 7s in our Bibles. And when we do, we're trying to reimagine God and sculpt him in a way that fits our needs, feeds our desires, and gives approval to the way that we want to live. And the tragedy of, it, the tragedy of that is, is that we think that it's going to be better for our lives, that it's going to leave us more satisfied and that we'll have a better blessing in our lives if we just focus on the things that we like about God and shove aside all those so-called negative God as a judge type of things. The reality is, is that God's justice is just as glory of an attribute as his mercy and grace. God's holiness is just as awesome and gives true meaning to the attribute of his steadfast love. This is something that the Israelites in Micah's time didn't understand. And it's the point that Micah makes in his rebuttal. Let's go back to Micah now. Chapter 2 and look at the rest of verse 7. The Lord responds through Micah with this. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? And now this is where some of the debate lies in who is speaking here. Some say that this could be Micah continuing to quote the people, but I think it makes more sense to look at this as the Lord's rebuttal to the question, which is basically, is that who God is? Would he really do these things? 
Now, I don't have time this morning to go into all the arguments as to why scholars tend to go with that interpretation, but I will mention a couple things. First, the pronoun my that is used here. It's a good indicator that this is switching to the Lord's voice. He's talking about my words, my word. The pronoun is used again in verses 8 and 9, and everybody is agreed that those verses are certainly speaking of the Lord. And secondly, this is making the exact point that the people are not getting. Look at the second half of verse 7 again. It says, do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? He's saying, yes, the word of the Lord is good, but it is good to those who walk according to his statutes. What is implied here in the phrase, my words, is all of the word of God. The whole counsel of God's word does good to those who love him and walk according to what he has prescribed in his word. God has never been ambiguous with this. He told them clearly in Deuteronomy 28 the blessings that would happen if they obeyed and the curses that would happen if they didn't. None of this should be a surprise to them. It's because they aren't listening and fully understanding who God is. What we listen to and believe about who God is affects the way we live and who we follow. Now let me ask you something. Are you willing to listen to the whole truth of who God is? We should. God's holiness and righteousness and justice are praiseworthy. Because it means that God is pure and hates sin and must deal with it. And he has in giving his son Jesus who died for us. If we reject who God is, that God is a God of justice and condemns sin, then we undermine the entire reason that we need our salvation. And the gospel makes no sense. Or are you trying to follow a God of your own making? Made up of half-truths because you just can't stomach the reality that God is going to judge sin. Because there are plenty out there who are willing to approve of the God of your own making. They're all over the place. And they were around during the time when Michael was preaching. Now, I deliberately waited until now to call it an observation in verse 6. Look up there with me once again. Verse 6, we read, Do not preach, thus they preach. Most commentators will agree that the people that Micah is addressing here and who he is quoting are the priests and religious leaders of his day. They were the ones teaching God's people. Micah is recording for us a dispute between the powerful and influential religious leaders and the Lord. And he's writing this in a mocking, sarcastic tone that reflects back to them the way they treated Micah's own preaching. Stop your blabbering. So say those who blabber. Stop your barking. So say the dogs that are devouring God's people. And they did devour God's people. Look with me at verses 8 through 10. And we'll read it all to get a sense of the the flow of thought here. 
The Lord says, starting in verse 8, But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of the uncleanness that destroys with grievous destruction. Now what is going on here is part of the indictment against the people Micah is scolding. And those people are the elite ruling class of Judah. They are the magistrates and the rich landowners and the religious leaders and the temple priests and even the king of Judah himself. There were those who had the power and responsibility as God's people to provide for God's people. But here the Lord is rebuking them and he's calling them an enemy. It's because they were oppressing those who had a charge to protect and serve. They were abusing their power for their own selfish gain and they were kicking them out of their own homes. Look over with me at verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here's a fuller account of the charge Micah is coming at them with. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hands. That's the reference to the elite working class. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. The powerful, rich elite were oppressing the people and evicting them from their homes, leaving them destitute. And those who were being oppressed weren't the extremely poor in the nation. These were people who had homes. They had livelihoods. They were raising families. And they were being robbed of their land in their homes. Now, why was this happening? Well, in order to better understand the circumstances, a little background is needed. So a little history. Now, during the time that Micah's ministry, uh, God, God's people were separated into two nations. Israel was the northern kingdom, and Judah was to the south. Samaria was the capital of Israel, and Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. Micah's ministry was primarily focused in Judah. Now, the prophets were active during this time, and one of the reasons was because of this division in God's people. But also, there were a couple of new big cats arriving on the international scene, both of them to the east, the Assyrians and then much later the Babylonians. And the constant conflict with the Assyrians and the never-ending influence of idolatry was creating problems, to say the least, for God's people. And they were not walking according to the covenant that God had made with them, hence the need for covenant enforcers. Now, Micah actually predicts the destruction of Samaria, the northern, the northern capital, and Jerusalem in his opening oracle in Micah chapter 1. And a partial fulfillment of that prophecy comes in the year 722 B.C. when Sargon II invades the north. Now, as the Assyrians are expanding in the region, wars are breaking out, men are being set off, sent off to fight, and they are dying. And they're leaving widows and orphans at home. 
And refugees from the northern kingdom who are suffering under Assyrian assault are pouring into Judah. And this has created a huge disparity between the elite, rich, ruling class in Judah and the people who have lost husbands and fathers and also the refugees who have lost their homes to the wars. Now, as this is happening, instead of the rich and the powerful leaders, which included the religious leaders, having compassion on the people, they took advantage of them and levied taxes that they couldn't pay and so evicted them from their homes, mostly because the workers in those households, the men, had been slaughtered on the battlefields, leaving women and children to fend for themselves. Now, it wasn't just a few rich who decided to not have any charity. This was widespread oppression. The temple priests were involved in this, and it was rotten all the way to the top, even to the king of Judah himself. Now, during the time of Micah is speaking these oracles of doom against this rich ruling class, most scholars believe that King Ahaz was the reigning king at the time. Micah 1.1 tells us that his ministry spanned through the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. But during the time when these oracles were given, Ahaz was the guy on the scene. And this guy was despicable. And to give a flavor of how despicable he was, listen to what is recorded in 2 Kings 16. This is 2 Kings 16, verses 2 through 4. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places, that's the location where the idolatrous altars were built, and on the hills and under every green tree. This guy was wicked, and his wickedness was on full display all over under every green tree. He burned his own son as an offering. That really wasn't the worst thing that he did. He got all cozy with the king of Assyria. And he admired the altars that they had built to their foreign false gods. So he had Uriah, the priest, build an exact replica of these false altars in the Jerusalem temple. I mean, this guy was bold, but it doesn't stop there. He actually goes into the temple and has the altar installed in there. And then he desecrates the bronze altar in the temple, just so he doesn't offend the king of Assyria, the very one who was slaughtering God's people. The king and the priests all were complicit in this. They gave their approval. They didn't believe that God was going to bring ruin on them because they'd been fine so far, and God had spared them in Judah and in Jerusalem. They had a completely wrong understanding of who God is, and they were fine with allowing all kinds of wickedness to go unchecked. And while they were bending over backwards, not offending the idolatrous tyrants who were killing God's people, they were ignoring their duty to God's people and instead oppressing them, kicking them out of their homes, and leaving them with nothing. 
This is the scene that Micah was witnessing. What we listen to and believe about who God is affects the way we live and who we follow. Now, as we refocus our attention back into verse 8, we can understand why the Lord is calling them an enemy. And what he is saying here in verse 8 and 9 is that they are stripping the dignity of his people bare, who are depending on Ahaz and those who can care for them. But they don't care that the men have died in wars. They don't care that there are widows weeping and orphans that are starving and have no homes. As long as they remain in power and have the comfort of their homes, they are fine to ignore and take advantage of God's people. Well, God's patience with their wickedness is going to come to an end because God doesn't ignore justice. This is what he writes in verse 10. Look with me. The Lord says, Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. He's saying, my judgment is coming to you, and the punishment is going to fit the crime. The wickedness that thrives in your hearts, that destroys my people, giving them no place to rest, is going to be the bitter pill that you will swallow. The days are coming when you will not have a home. You will be driven out and exiled. There will be no rest for you. This is a sober warning to those who do not want to listen to the call of God to repentance. If you carry on and continue to live in defiance, there will be no rest. Galatians 6, 7 says it right on the nose. Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. They grew wicked in their dealings with their fellow brothers and sisters. They proved beyond a doubt that they had no understanding of who God is and the basic tenets of God's covenant. And it led to the people of God wickedly oppressing the people of God. They had no understanding of the two greatest commandments in all of God's word. What are they? Jesus summarizes it perfectly like this. This is Matthew 22, 36 through 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let me ask you. When you see your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are in need, do you who are able come and help them? Are you making yourselves available to them even when it costs you something? We don't even need to impress them. Simply failing to have compassion and responding to their needs is failing to understand the basic commandment to love your neighbor. God's people should be the first responders to the trials and needs of God's people. And not only God's people, those who are coming into our communities, even refugees from wars, are we responding to them in a compassionate way? 
Are we dealing justly with those who are depending on us? Even those who are working underneath us? Micah's heart is breaking for God's people being treated with such shame. He's witnessing the religious leadership in the nation, black with corruption, doing nothing in oppressing people when they should be helping them. He points to the wickedness and tells them that the judgment that God is sending to them because of their unrepentant hearts, and they have the audacity to say to him, stop your blabbering at us. You don't know who the true God is. What we listen to and believe about who God is affects the way we live and who we follow. Micah has one final comment about who they are. One final remark that perfectly sums up their delusions as false teachers of God's people. Look at how the Lord is describing them in verse 11. He says, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. Micah has a biting sarcasm in the way that he describes them as the preachers for this people. They don't want to listen to the the good word of God's truth. They don't want to know who the true God is. They want to make up a God that fits their own agenda. Now some will read this line, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, and they they take that to mean that the people will allow even a drunkard to come to preach. And I think you might be able to make the argument that the effect of false teaching would be the same as if the preacher were drunk. But I think it's simply saying that they're preaching what the people want to hear. Even vices. Go ahead, get drunk. It's all good. Lord forgives. But I think there's something going on here that gives us a better, fuller picture of the attributes of a false teacher. Micah describes them as one who utters wind and lies. And I believe that the idea here is to convey that what they are preaching is devoid of any real truth. That what they say is vapid and insubstantial like the wind and has no perceivable way of grasping a hold of. Additionally, he calls out that they, are, they speak lies, meaning both that they are deceived and that they're willfully deceptive in their teaching. Now, how is it that a people can be so easily deceived? Wouldn't they want to know what they're teaching the things have no real truth to them? Wouldn't they know that what they say is a lie? And really, what would be so attractive about them they're preaching that the people would follow them? What is it that's going on in their hearts? The answer is because they don't want to know who the true God is. They don't understand their love for following after the deceptive desires of their own selfish hearts. And when someone comes along and says, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, they're simply telling you what you want to hear. They're saying, I'll preach to you that it's okay for you to cling to your vices and your sin. They're saying, hey, it's all right. We're not here to judge. I'm not going to talk about all that negative sin stuff. God's not an angry God. He's only there to give us blessings. He's a God of love. That's our God. He's the God that forgives. 
And when some preachers say that to you, and you're only willing to follow the God of your own making, you say, ah, finally, someone who gets me. When that happens, that thing in your mind called a conscience that God put there to tell you that you need to obey him, because that's one of the benefits of God's word. It strengthens the conscience. That happily goes right out the window, and you become perfectly satisfied living in a way contrary to the word of God. Because some false teacher put the stamp of approval on it. Your conscience is weakened and your heart is hardened and you become deceived into thinking that you know who the true God is. Just like the false teachers in Micah's town thought they knew God and led their people to destruction. What then about who God is should we believe? How should we live and who do we follow? You can't have God's love without God's holiness. You can't have God's mercy without God's justice. You can't have God's love to forgive without understanding God's hatred for sin. And who God is is most perfectly realized in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of God's holiness, love, mercy, and justice. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus came to live the perfect life we cannot live and died for us to satisfy God's justice on the cross so that we may have peace with him. If we reject God as a God of justice who judges sin, we reject his solution of Christ crucified on the cross. If we believe God and have true faith in Christ, then we should be overwhelmed with gratitude and it should produce in us a heart that is eager to serve him and his people. Is there a place in your heart for truth? When you, cross, when you come across something in the word of God that he reveals about himself that doesn't quite fit into your idea of who God is, do you suspect yourself? Or do you suspect God? When we're not li- willing to listen and understand who God is, we pave the road for false teachers. We make it easy for them to drive right up and offer us a ride and we'll happily speed off with them. We like to point fingers at guys like Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar and Benny Hinn and the like for being false teachers. And make no mistake, they are. But they're just feeling a supply and demand. They're seeing a capitalist opportunity to give what people want. The biggest false teacher that we need to be cautious of is the one that sits right in our own hearts. We need to suspect ourselves. We also need to be careful about lifting up our favorite authors too high, as if we're following them. We need to make sure that they're pointing us to the true teacher, Jesus Christ. 
Because if they aren't pointing us to Jesus, they're pointing us to something else. Self-help, financial stability, workplace success, better living. They will point you to anything but to the true teacher. What we listen to and believe about who God is affects the way we live and who we follow. Jesus Christ is the true teacher who says, follow me. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, forgive our unbelief. Forgive our cold hearts and our lack of love for your people. To have compassion. Lord, creating in us a clean heart, Lord, that desires you to know who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us the whole counsel of your word, that you have been pleased to bless us with the scriptures that reveal all of who you are. Open our hearts that we would receive that, that we would cling to that, that we would suspect our own hearts, casting aside anything that contradicts your word. Lord, guide us to love who you are as you have revealed in Jesus Lord, we thank you for him. We thank you for his perfect righteousness. We thank you for him suffering on the cross for us, that your wrath was satisfied in him, Lord, that we who believe and put our trust in Jesus will not have to face that. Lord, we praise you that you are a holy God, a God of justice, that you do not let the evils in the world go, that you deal with them, Lord, that they are grievous to your soul, Lord. And we just pray, Father, that you would just help us understand that more. Lead us, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessings that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.